Advent, which is Latin for arrival or coming, is a season in which we reflect and celebrate the miraculous birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Throughout the season, we light candles on the Advent wreath, with each candle representing a different aspect of the importance of Jesus' birth. Though we look back at the first Advent, we also look forward to the second Advent, when Christ will come again, not as a child, but as a conquering king. Last week, we lit the candle of joy. We rejoice knowing that Jesus Christ came not just as an infant, but as our Savior. Today, we will light the candle of fulfillment. Genesis tells us of the fall when sin entered the world, and in chapter 3, verse 15, God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All of Scripture point towards a coming Savior, one who would make whole, which was broken one who would pay the overwhelming debt caused by sin. John the Baptist, who leapt in his mother's womb, prepared the way for Jesus and preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins and pointing people to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, who fulfills the prophecies. Our Old Testament reading is from the prophet Isaiah. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the month of the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our New Testament reading and our scripture reading for this morning. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke chapter 1, verses 69 through 79. We pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and grace. Despite our sin and rebellion, you promised us a redeemer. You fulfilled that promise in your son, Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, and by his resurrection from the grave. May we continue to trust in your sovereign plan, remembering your love for us while looking forward to your return. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We are in Luke chapter 1 together. That would be great if you had a Bible, you turn there. If not, there are Bibles in the back, out by the sound booth. We're in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke. One of the synoptic gospels, meaning similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke being the three synoptic gospels. We're in Luke chapter 1, studying chapters 1 and 2, where we find the canticles of Christmas. 
Canticum in Latin, meaning song or hymn. There are four of them. Actually, there's more than four, but we're looking at four in the Gospel according to Luke chapters 1 and 2. Last week, if you remember, hopefully you were here, we saw the canticle, uh, uh, the song, the hymn of Mary called the Magnificat. A beautiful song. I've heard from many of you, God was just moving in your hearts as we just looked at that song together of the mother of Jesus singing and declaring this enormously gospel-centered praise. First, she praised God for what, you know, for her own salvation. Then she praised him for what he was going to do through her and the promises that he had made from generation to generations, and then keeping his covenantal promise to Abraham, which we will look at in detail today. So that was last week. This week, we're in chapter 1 again, but starting in verse 67, looking at the song of the canticle of, of Zechariah, the dad, the father of John the Baptist. The canticle is called the Benedictus. I think I have that. Yeah, nope, canticle Zechariah called the Benedictus. Again, taken from the Latin of the first words of that song in Latin is blessed be Latin benedictus blessed be the Lord God of Israel benedictus dominus Dios Israel so we get the song title it's a wonderful hymn it's a, it's a wonderful and I hope I hope I, I'm just going to boast about Jesus today I'm just going to boast about the fulfillment of God's promises here in, in Luke chapter 1, and we see all the promises fulfilled. We see his faithfulness. We see his covenantal promises to Israel and to the world being fulfilled as, as Zechariah holds baby John in his arms. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful song. And let me just set the stage. As you know, the gospel begins with Zechariah, who's a priest. He's in the line of Aaron. Both he and his wife are both in that lineage of, of the Aaronic priesthood. They're older, they're, they're elderly, they're, they're beyond the age of bearing children. But the Gabriel comes to them, the angel Gabriel comes to them and says that they are going to have a child. The, he comes to Zechariah while he was in the temple doing his priestly duties. And he says, you're going to have a child, and when the child is born, you shall name him John. Meaning God is gracious. Zechariah responds in unbelief, unlike Mary's we saw last week, when the angel came to her, she responded in faith. Zechariah responds in unbelief, and the angel Gabriel tells him that he will not be able to speak. And according to our text, which we'll look at this morning, I think he was both unable to speak, he was mute, but he was also deaf, for he could not hear, for they do signs for him to understand. And the angel told him that this is going to remain, you will remain mute, you will remain unable to speak until everything that has been said comes to pass. Fast forward, chapter 1, verse 57 and 58, we find a fulfillment of that promise. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that she had, that the Lord had shown her great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So we see the fulfillment. There will be gladness, there'll be joy. Many will come with you and, and be joyful together. We see that come to, to be, come to be. In verse 59, we see, uh, according to the eighth day, according to the law of Moses, John was being circumcised. Now in that day, they would name the child when the child was born, or they may wait until the eighth day when they would bring the child to the temple or they would come to the house, and then during the circumcision, they would name the child. That's what we see happening here. On the eighth day, verse 59, chapter 1, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother said, no, 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 no. 
he shall be called John. I'm sure there's conversation between mother and father. Verse 61, and they said to her, no, 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 none of your relatives is called by that name. So they, the women gathered in the community, rejoiced with her, and of course, you know, you get a bunch of ladies together, you're going to decide what name you should call them. You know, there may be some differences of opinions. And they're like, really, why would you name him John? You have a, people drive you crazy like that, right? You're like you're having a baby, it's your first child, and they want to tell you everything you need to do. So that's what we have. So after hours of bickering back and forth, it doesn't say that. I just added that. They turned to Zechariah. Obviously, he was, he was mute, but they're making signs to him. So many commentaries, which I agree, think that he was probably deaf as well. And he, look what he does. He says, nope, call the boy John. Literally, John will be his name. He pulls out his iPad. It says, well, not his iPad, but he pulls out a pad. It's a, it's a wooden pad. It's covered with um, wax, and you would use like a stylus, something maybe a bone or a piece of metal, iron, and you would write in it. And he writes, his name is John. Well, as I said, literally in the Greek, John, emphatic, will be his name. And what happens next, we see, is not by accident. It's not just thrown in Scripture. It's, not, it's something that we should stop and just reflect for a minute, because Zechariah was made deaf and mute at the moment of his disbelief, and yet at the moment of his obedience, his tongue is loosened. In the moment of him obeying, he opens his mouth and he praises God. He's showing the, 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 the trust and the, and the faithfulness of his God. And, and I think it's safe to say that God's merciful, merciful, kind, gracious discipline for nine months brought this elderly man to a greater trust in God, a greater faith, a greater love for his God. You know, oftentimes, God takes hard experiences, hard trials, hard ways in which we suffer and uses it to drive us into a deeper Love, a deeper trust, deeper faith in him. Does he not? And wow, God just pours himself out. Look at verse 64. It says that when his tongue was loose in verse 64, it said, he spoke and he blessed God. I'm sure the nine months must have felt very long. Not be able to speak, not be able to hear anything that his wife is nagging him, I mean, talking to him about. Nothing. Some of you guys are thinking, yeah, that, that doesn't sound that bad. Shame on you. <laughs> and some of you women thinking, wow, quiet around the house. Really? You got nothing to say to me at all, huh? Pretty good. That, that sounds pretty good. But anyway, a husband that can't talk, huh? And anyway, so verse 65, Luke writes in verse 66, verse 65 and verse 66, Luke is just giving us some information after this, this birth, after this blessing of God, he says, verse 65, and fear came on all the neighborhood and all, those, all these things were talked about all throughout the country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So what I want you to see as we jump into this is the context. In verse 63, 
when he writes, his name is John, John will be his name, and they all wondered. And, and then verse 64, he loosened his tongue and he spoke, blessing God. I believe verse 67 and verse 68, the actual song itself, came right after that. Luke is just taking a break in verse 66, excuse me, 65 and 66, showing us what was going on. But I believe what happened was John said his name will be John, and immediately he was, verse 67, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke and blessed God, and the first thing he said, the first thing he opened his mouth after nine months is verse 68 and following. It wasn't two separate incidents, it was one. It was, it, was, it was him obeying, it was him responding in faith, it was him trusting God in his promises, and what did God do? God filled him with the Holy Spirit, God broke out into this song, he immediately blessed God, and look at verse 1, blessed be the Lord. So that, that I believe, 68 is picking up at verse 64. Okay, does that make sense? You following me? Okay, that's, that's what I think what is happening here. Nine months he was quiet, and now all of a sudden the Spirit of God fills him up, and he's blessing God, and we have, praise God, the record of it, which we're going to look at today. What we'll do is we'll look at it on the, on the three headings. Really simple, the Benedictus. Um, first, the blessing of God in the fulfillment, we're going to do covenant today, in the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Next, the blessing of God and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And third, the blessing of God, the fulfillment of the new covenant. Okay, that's where we're going. When Zechariah came to the place of believing and trusting God, he broke into worship. He broke into worship. Zechariah filled with the Spirit, verse 67, and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for... He has visited and redeemed his people. This is very common. Very common songs of praise, hymns of praise for a specific act in which God is doing. Right? And what happens is, is when we see God for who he is, when we see God for all that he has done, when we see him in his provisions for his people, particularly for the provision in his salvation, in the redemption, we are moved, we are compelled, we should be compelled to worship him. First principle, true worship at its root is a response to the revelation of God. True worship at its root is a response to the revelation of God. We see God who is great, who is glorious, who is holy, who is merciful, who is majestic, who is the redeemer. And when he shows himself, the proper response is worship. Praise and worship. This song, like Mary's song, is in the prophetic, what they call the aris or the past tense. And what Zechariah is saying is, has visited, will redeem, all one, done deal. It's done. Some of it is, is on the way of being done, but because of God's promise, we could speak of something in the past as something already having taken place. Genuine faith expresses in this explosion of worship. Right? There, there, there is no, there is no when there is no worship, there's likely no true faith. Because when we see God for who he is and what he has done, when we recognize our need of him, it brings us to the heart, it brings, us, it brings our heart 
full of gratitude and worship. And Zechariah is saying, praise God, because he, God, has visited his people. It is God who is accomplishing their salvation. Now, notice, it's a proud moment for dad. Amen? He's, you know, who, old, who knows how old? 60s, 70s, I don't know. He has a baby. In those days, not having children was hard. It is today. In a, in a family structure, culture, even more so. And here he is with the first son at 60, 70, I don't know. And what does he do? He points to someone greater than his son. I think it was Ligon Duncan said, if it was me, I would have went on a book tour. <laughs> Let me tell you all about this boy that was been born, right? Going to all the talk shows. But, you know, he's pointing. He said, yeah, John is unique. John is special. John will prepare the way for the Messiah. But what I want you to really see is that God is doing something, that God is extraordinary, God is great, God is doing something unprecedented. He's preparing to visit his people in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He will accomplish his redemption for his people. Also, like Mary, he points away from himself, and he points to Christ. Do you know that John will come on the scene and he will do the same thing? Guys, what are we teaching? Our family. Point to Jesus. Does our families, do our children say, my dad cares more about Christ, his glory, his mission, than he does his own well-being, his own comfort? John comes on the scene and he says, he must increase, I must decrease. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. This God has come for redemption. Verse 68, important word. If you've been a Christian in any amount of time, you know how important redemption is. It literally means to be freed by means of a price that's paid. Freed from the means, by means of a price that's been paid. A kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament would be a relative who would have the right to buy back land, to buy back uh, even animals or, or a person from slavery. They have the right to redeem their relative. We saw that in the book of Ruth. We studied together. Redemption also is in the, the firstborn. We see that in Exodus in the law of Moses that a price was required to, to redeem the firstborn because every Firstborn child belongs to the Lord and God required preparing us to see Jesus who was the firstborn and who was sacrificed on our behalf. He was required. It was required of the family to buy back, to redeem the firstborn. Secondly, in scripture, redemption is very, very important when we look at God's rescue, God's deliverance from his peop- for his people in Egypt. Over and over, the scripture talks about the redemption of God's people being brought out of Egypt, being brought out of slavery, being brought out of bondage into the promised land. They were redeemed. And this song of Zechariah is all about our rescue. It's all about our deliverance according to the promises paid by the Redeemer. How is it going to be? Look at verse 69. We get a glimpse. He starts to talk about Jesus. He has raised up. God has raised up. He knows about Mary's baby. He knows about what God is doing. He's a priest. He knows his Bible. He knows the prophecies. He knows what Mary's been told. They spent three months together. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, horn, okay? Not like beep, beep. Okay, that's not the horn he's talking about. He's talking about an animal's horn, especially of an ox or a bull, symbolizing strength, a display of power, like get out of the way when that thing comes at you, right? That, that's what he's talking about. He's saying there's this Davidic horn that's going to be raised up, who's going to be mighty in display of power. This is the Redeemer. He picks up, I think we see that in Mary too. Remember last week? Mary said he's the mighty one. He's the warrior who defends his people. John's saying this Davidic person is, is the, the horn of salvation, mighty and strong. Talking about Jesus from the house of his servant David. Very important. Well, you know what's really cool? is last week we looked at the, the Magnificat. I mentioned that Mary's song, a lot of it had to do with uh, Old Testament. She like brought in these, all these Old Testament scriptures and sang from her heart scripture as she was empowered by the Spirit. Well, what's cool is Hannah in, in 1 Samuel is praying because of her son Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the song opens the same way Mary's song opens. I extol or I magnify the Lord. And Mary, I think, is, 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 is following in those footsteps. But what's so cool about that song in 1 Samuel 2 that Mary is copying is the end of that song. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, right? Mary started it. Here the end of it. This is what it says, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Messianic psalm, messianic words. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. There's going to be might and power. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed is the word Messiah. He will give strength to the king and exalt to the horn of the Messiah. All this was promised to David and Zechariah is saying the same thing. That someday, someday, the promise was that a king would come from the line, from the lineage of David with all authority and power to reign and to rule over an eternal kingdom. David's son Solomon would build the house, the literal temple, But God makes his promise that through David they'll become a greater and ultimate successor who would rule a greater and eternal kingdom. 2 Samuel. I have it for you. Verse 7. When your days are fulfilled, David, this is Nathan talking to David, the prophet. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house or a dynasty. Not a literal like the temple, but a dynasty. He will build a dynasty for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your kingdom, verse 16, and your house shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Zechariah the priest from Aaron, and the rest of the nation of Israel was waiting for this Messiah, this promise, this covenantal promise that God made to David about this king who would live and reign 
forever and ever. They waited with great anticipation. And we don't find it just one place in Scripture. It's not just 2 Samuel. You'll find it in 1 Chronicles 17. Go home and read Psalm 89 when you get home this afternoon. And you'll see the details of this Davidic covenant that was made. I, I, I read somewhere this week there was 40 references in the Old Testament about this Davidic covenant. Now Zechariah is saying, the king is here. My son will point the way to the king. The, the, the king in line from the body of, of, of David. I mean, no surprise. What did Gabriel say to Mary back in verse 32? Chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great. He will be called son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of what? His father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. Now, some people say when Zechariah had John and, he, and he's prophesying, he's talking about the fulfillment of the Vitica kingdom and the, the destruction of enemies, the, those who hate me, we see that in that verse. He's talking about a political kingdom. Zechariah was talking about, because you read the gospel, you read the, the, the accounts of the gospel, you'll see a lot of people wanted Jesus to come and, and they wanted him to just come and deliver the kingdom now. We don't want to wait. Roman oppression, we want, we want a king now. And I think maybe there's some of that in there. But I think Zechariah was much more, or was looking much more forward to the eternal kingdom when he will reign and rule throughout the universe, right? So there is a sense that when Christ comes back in the second return, that all political parties, all you know, governmental parties will be put down. It's not going to be, let me see, Republican, Democrat, Jesus. It's not going to work that way, just so you know. There's not going to be debates. There's not going to be sides. There's not going to be, well, I wonder if this is going to pass. None of that's going to happen, I promise you, when King Jesus shows up, right? He's not, he's not sharing his platform with anyone, okay? No two-party system. That won't happen when he returns, right? This is what one theologian writes. He says, there may be a reference here to political liberation as well, but something far more glorious is meant here. The whole, W-H-O-L-E, the wholehearted service of the Lord in complete freedom Complete freedom from all bonds of sin, guilt, punishment, curse, Satan, and destruction is what he's talking about, end quote. Listen, listen just, just soak this in. This is just a little snippet of some of the things that were promised in the Davidic covenant. The Lord will establish a Messiah. He will be the all-powerful King of kings, omnipotent Lord. The king will defeat all Israel's enemies. There will be great prosperity in the kingdom. The city of Jerusalem will rise in world uh, preeminence. The city of the world will be the kingdom in Jerusalem. Gentiles in the kingdom, that's us non-Jews, will receive blessings, which we have. You're here today. There will be worldwide peace. Righteousness will reign as unseen since the fall of Adam. In the kingdom, the Messiah will have sovereign authority, exhibit great leadership, He will destroy the enemies. He will oppose and bring down all those who hate Jerusalem. The knowledge of the Lord will be collective. This is just part of what the scriptures say. All of creation will experience renewal. Isaiah tells us that in this kingdom that even the animals will be at peace with one another. Sorrow and mourning will disappear in the kingdom. The Lord himself will judge sin. These are all part of the promised kingdom. Now for some of you, like me, who like to study the end times, the diff, the, what everyone agrees is that Jesus is from the line of David who will reign and rule in an eternal kingdom. The issue for some of us is when. 
Will it be when he returns and we go into the eternal kingdom without a thousand year reign, Revelation 20? Or will Jesus come back, reign for a thousand years, bring part of this kingdom in, and then into the eternal kingdom he will go? Either way, the issue is Jesus returns, Jesus is king, Jesus is from the line of David, Jesus will reign and rule, the world will submit to him, and he will enter into his eternal kingdom where righteousness reigns, and he is Lord over the world. He is sitting on his Father's throne forever and ever. Amen? I think it's after the thousand year reign, but you can think what you want. For some of you guys that will see me after the service, we can talk about it. But that's okay. Listen to Isaiah 9. We sing it every Christmas, right? For us to us, for us to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Family, that's good news. I submit to you that that's good news. I submit to you that we are people who have hope. We are people that know that the world is broken, that someday it'll be made right. We are people that look at poverty and injustice and, and, and brokenness in this world, and we say, Jesus is king. He's going to make everything right. He will wipe away every tear. And Zechariah has this baby, his son, looking to the promised Messiah, recognizing that David's covenant, he will reign and rule in the house forever. Every enemy will be torn down. Everyone who opposes God will be put away, and king will reign. And God has come and began what he promised and fulfilled it in Christ. That's good news. That makes us look at the news differently. That makes us look at uh, um, relationships differently. That makes us look at everything differently when we have that hope. When our eyes are fixed on that eternal, absolute, covenantal promise that God will bring. I use this illustration. I'm going to use it and we'll, we'll move on to the next point. If you are given a job in a factory to put light bulbs in a box every single day of your life and you were promised at the end of that year for standing there and doing that 10, 12, 14 hours a day for a year and you were promised at the end of the year $10,000. It would be very different than if you had that same person doing the same job and you were promised after a year $10 million. Your approach to that job would be very different because you know at the end of the year what's going to happen. If we had that hope in what God was going to do, what would our lives be like? What would our relationships be like? What would our marriages be like? What would our communities be like? What would our church be like? It's happening. Next, God fulfills the covenant of Abraham. Verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And the word covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise. A binding set of agreements that, that specify the conditions of a relationship. Covenants are all about relationships. God is a covenant-making God who has relationships with his people, Right? We see the first one back in Genesis 2. We find the first covenant made with Adam. We know that Adam failed miserably, right? It was called the covenant of works. I give you everything that you have. I give you 
all that you need, even, even a, a beautiful, undressed wife. Just don't touch the tree. If you do, you will die. See the covenant? Do this. It's conditional. Do this, get this. Don't do this, get that. And we know what happened to Adam. He, he, he ate the tree and he died. He got the consequences of his covenant. That's a conditional covenant. In Genesis 6 through 9, we see the flood. And, we, and God comes to Noah and makes a covenant with him. Was it up to Noah? Absolutely not. He just came, to, he came, he made a unilateral, unconditional covenant. I'm not going to destroy the earth. He makes a covenant. He gives him a rainbow. That's the, the sign of the covenant. Noah is the head of the covenant. And he says, I'm going to give you this sign and this covenant I'll make with you. I will never do this again. He doesn't say, unless you do this or do that. He makes a unilateral, unconditional covenant. So covenants in Scripture sometimes are universal. Sometimes they're limited. Sometimes they're conditional. Sometimes they're unconditional. Okay? God makes a promise to Adam, has been covenant with him. He breaks the covenant. He gets the consequences. But I'm here to tell you that that covenant that was conditional, God in the midst of that broken world steps in. And praise God he does. He steps into the world and he speaks. And he makes an unconditional promise to you and I. Chapter 3 of Genesis verse 15. I will, not I might, not just in case this happens. He says, I will. God's saying, I will. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God said there's going to come a day that the seed of the woman is going to crush Satan, going to defeat sin, is going to conquer death. And this covenant was not because Adam was faithful, Abraham was faithful, you and I are faithful. This covenant was given on God's faithfulness, not ours. This unconditional promise of this seed, of this destruction of, of, of Satan, Sin and death emerges again with Abraham. That's where we get to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, God comes and makes a covenant with him. That he will bless him, makes a promise. He will bless him. He will curse those who curse him. He will bless him. He will bless all the families through him. And he reiterates the promise in Genesis 15 and then in Genesis, Genesis 17. We covered this before, but for those that weren't here. He says to him, I will make you, Abraham exceedingly fruitful. I will make you, Abraham, into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan, which is the land, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Look, look what it says in this covenant. Number one, there'll be a covenant of, uh, a promise, a covenant of lineage. Verse seven, he says to Abraham, your offspring, I will give this to your offspring, his descendants. There's a covenant of lineage. There's also a covenant of land. Verse eight, I will give you the land of Canaan. So there's a lineage promise, there's a land promise, and then in, in, at the end or throughout this you see the promise of the Lord himself. I will bless you personally. I will come and I will bless you. I will be your God. Okay, I, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. So we have a lineage, we have a land, and we have this promise, personal promise to him. And now, this goes back to Genesis 3.15. That, that this promise that was given in Genesis 3.15 now was given to Abraham and this promise which is unconditional, which is unilateral, one-sided, 
is the Messiah. Genesis, excuse me, Galatians 3, Paul picks this theme up. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham, we just read that, and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, multiple, referring to many, but referring to one. And that offspring, that promise, that covenantal promise that God made, he said, is Christ. The entire trajectory of Genesis is pointing to the offspring. The, the, the whole promise that God made with the land and, and, and the, 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 the Lord himself will bless him points to this lineage, this, this one who will come from the loins, from the body of Abraham. Do you know Matthew's gospel, the gospel according to Matthew, opens up with these words. It's really important. You, you, you read right through this, you think, all right, that's not really important, but it is. This is how Matthew opens up, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's both. He's the fulfillment of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of David. Thousands of years. And God keeps his promises. And look at why. Look why he keeps his promises. Because of what? The mercy. You see that? The mercy, he says. Verse 72. The mercy promised to our fathers. His has said. His loyal covenantal love for his people it's not because of his works it's not because abraham was such a great guy he was not it was not because it was conditioned on what he would do it was conditioned on what god would do in genesis 15 where god cuts the covenant with abraham some of you may remember this do you remember god comes to abraham and says listen i want you to, I want you to get some animal i want you to sacrifice i want you to cut the animals in two and then get small birds and lay them side by side so you have a piece of an animal some birds piece of an animal some birds space in between and abraham's like okay i'll go do that well, because abraham knew the deal Abraham knew that that's how they cut covenants back then we get lawyers now 10 15 lawyers thousands of dollars and we finally get something that doesn't really worth the paper it's on. But back then, they would do this and they would, they would lay these animals out between. And what they would do is they would walk through these broken, this, this torn, shredded animals saying, let this happen to me if I don't keep my covenant. Let this, let this curse happen to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain. Let this happen to me, he says, this torn to pieces that I'd be slaughtered like these animals if I don't keep it. And what's so amazing is if you go to Genesis 15, it says that God put Abram to sleep, darkness fell upon him, and then a smoking fire pot, a blazing torch passed between the pieces of the sacrifice. You know what that is? That's what's called a theophany. That's the presence of God. And what's so cool is that God doesn't say to Abraham, all right, follow me. I'll do it, and I want you to do it. So we're in covenant together. That doesn't happen. The only one walking through that covenant, the only one that's announcing curse if he were not to keep it is God himself. That's why it's a unilateral, unconditional promise that God makes with himself. I mean, it was a divine self-denunciation guaranteeing that Abram would have a descendant who would be the Messiah or God would bring a curse upon himself or God would be killed, which that can't happen, right? He can't bring a curse upon himself. So this, this, it's not only unconditioned unilateral. Listen, it's eternal. It's irrevocable. It's full of grace. It's undeserved and unearned. Zechariah is holding his baby in his arms. Probably just looking at this baby, realizing that God, you keep your promises. 
And because he does, because Jesus is the promised offspring who crushes Satan, defeats sin, rises from the dead, delivers us from the hands of our enemies. Look, look what it says in verse 74. So that we may what? Serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Which bring us to a third point. The fulfillment of the New, Test- the new Covenant. Verse 74, verse 75, verse 76. And you, child, be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You child, as he prophesies, filled with the Spirit. You child. The fulfillment of what's going to happen. The fulfillment of what Gabriel told him back in the chapter 1, verse 16. He will turn the hearts, many of the children of Israel, to the Lord. He will go before them in, in, the, in the power of Elijah. John the Baptist will go in the power of Elijah. He, he will turn hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, That's just not prophetic. That's a fulfillment of what Malachi said, if you don't know this. I'm here to tell you that 400 years earlier, the Old Testament closed with Malachi. If you're Italian, it's Malachi. Closing 400 years. 400 years, Malachi closes the Old Testament prophets, closes the word of God in the Old Testament, saying that when God speaks, he will speak, but what he will do is he will raise a prophet up who will prepare the hearts, who will preach repentance, who will get people ready for the Lord. 400 years, silence, no word. God does not speak, and then all of a sudden, in a temple, 400 years later, to a regular old preacher doing his job, to an elderly couple, God says, that's coming true right now. Now, We have heard prophetic utterances up to now, but John the Baptist is a prophet called to the office of prophet. There's a difference. I won't get into it, but there's a difference between the gift of prophecy and the prophet, the call or the office of prophet. John the Baptist is called and takes responsibility to preach repentance of sin, prepare the way for the Lord. The Old Testament closes with him coming. The New Testament opens with with him being there. But let me tell you something. As I said before, Zechariah is is very excited about having a son, I am sure. But what he's really pointing to more than anything else. I mean, look at verse 76 through 79. Everything that that he talks about his son is is impeccable to what really John does. But that's not what he's getting at, I don't think. I mean, that's part of it. But what he does, what Zechariah understands that when the Messiah comes... The fulfillment of all the promises to David, all the promises to Abraham, including the personal promises of salvation, will come because what is ultimately being fulfilled is the covenant of the New Testament or the covenant or the new covenant. So David's fulfillment, Abraham's fulfillment, personal salvation, redemption's coming because all this is being fulfilled in what is called the new covenant. It's the new covenant. Notice what it says back in verse 74 with this covenantal language and the promises of fulfillment of God. Look what it says in verse 74. Being delivered from the hands of our enemies for what? To serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. 
Look at 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now listen, 74, 75, and 77, both of these things, forgiveness of sins, serving God without fear, holiness, and righteousness, go together. Because it is through, listen, it is through the forgiveness of sins that we receive a new heart. To be able to do that, to serve God without fear. A heart that serves God in holiness, separate from sin, devoted to God. A heart that is righteous, bent towards doing what is right. I hope you see the problem, though. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Romans 3 says there's no one righteous, not one single person. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good, not even one. Ephesians 2, that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We are following the enemy and the power of the air. We are following the one who works in the sons of disobedience. We are by children, nature of wrath. You see, here's the problem. We, like Israel, break every covenant, violate every law, right? The Bible says if you break one law, you have broken them all. Like Israel, we're a sinful people in need of forgiveness. We need forgiveness. We have a sinful, broken heart. We need a new heart. We need a heart that's not a slave to sin, in bondage to sin, an enemy of God. We need a heart that is new. We need a heart that's enslaved to God, a heart that is bent towards doing what is right. And you may think, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't know, you're coming down pretty hard, it's fire and brimstone, I don't, know if, I don't know how much, you know, can that be really so? Let me give you an illustration D.L. Moody used. He says this, suppose we could take your heart, place it in a glass cage, and then suppose that everybody could walk by, look in that cage, and see just what you are. Suppose everyone could see what you think what you desire, what your motives are, all your secret thoughts, what would you do then? Would you want to put drapes over the cage? Or would you be willing to have any and all see your heart? Or would you admit that you need a new heart? The song is all about the fulfillment of God's promises, all about what Jesus came to do. And not just to forgive sins, but to change us. And that brings us to one last passage of the Old Testament. Look with me if you have your Bible to Jeremiah. Zechariah had not received his New Testament yet, right? Jesus is not even born. New Testament not written. The only thing Zechariah had that pointed him to this promise, this new covenantal promise where we could serve God, love God, live in righteousness, have forgiveness of sin, was the Old Testament. And he would turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant, my covenant, they broke. That's the Mosaic law. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins 
no more. See the connection? See the connection? I will write it on their hearts. I will put it in their hearts. I will cause them to walk this way because I will forgive their sins. I will remember their sins no more. So the only hope that David's fulfillment, the only hope of Abraham's fulfillment is that we be forgiven of our sins and given a new heart. That the law of God be written on it. And when you talk about law, it doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. Law has to do with, 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 with um, force, law of gravity. So God is not only giving us his word, his, his promises, his will for us, but he is also giving us the ability to carry it out through the new covenant. That's the work of Christ. We can find it again in Ezekiel. Ezekiel says this about the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And that's forgiveness of sins. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, God is saying, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's saying, I'll transform you. I'll place my spirit within you. I will awaken you. I will give you something brand new that you never had before. I will cause it from inside of you. I will do my work. And then, you know what? Centuries later, Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, on the night he eats the Passover dinner with his disciples, he takes the cup And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is it? It's the unilateral, irrevocable, unchangeable eternal promise of God. That in Jesus Christ we are forgiven for our sins. He's the offspring of of promise that on the cross he defeated sin he defeated satan he destroyed our enemies he vanquished death he saved sinners he forgives sinners and he regenerates hearts from the inside to love him and to obey him and folks this can't be done by you your heart is broken your heart is wicked your heart is deceitful your heart is stone it has to be done by god I will make a covenant with you. I will put my law on you. I will write it on your heart. I will be your God. I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sins no more. By the law, by the works, no man will be made right with God. You're never going to receive this kind of salvation and transformation by earning it or by merit. It's only by God. And when God takes sinners, both Jew and Gentile, who repent of their sins, who acknowledge their inability to love God, to serve God, and receive his mercy and grace by turning from their sins, trusting in Christ, receiving the salvation that God offers to us. He not only forgives us our sin, but he gives us a new heart. Because of his tender mercy. Verse 78, in closing. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Mercy has said loyal covenant, but look at that word tender. If you have a Bible, circle that word. Splachnon, inner organs, bowels. The tender mercy of God goes deep, deep to the heart of God, rooted in the very nature of God is his mercy. It's not shallow. It's not, you know, grudgingly, all right, I'll just have to do this for you. It's part of who he is. It's a glorious attribute of God, that deep, Deep within the heart of God, he's merciful, he's kind. 
He's showing favor and kindness and mercy to those who are undeserving. Verse 79 says that Israel in the dark. They're undeserving, they're in the dark. They're shipwrecked, they're they're lonely, they're broken, they're sitting in darkness. Ah, but then look, because of God's tender mercy, it says, the sunrise has visited them. The light has come. Kent Hughes' commentary writes this. But then, he's talking about the sunshine, the light of Christ. He says, but then, while they're sitting in darkness, faint change is seen in the east. The sky is no longer black, but blue. Their eyes move to the west, and in the darkness forms take shape at first metallic and dull. Then comes just a whisper of color. As their eyes switch back to the east, a cobalt blue turns to royal blue, and a long line of pink rims the horizon. The sun is up. They are quickly on their feet, exchanging smiles, rubbing hands, and beginning to cheer. The cosmic appearance of Christ. Peter says he's the morning star. Peter says he's the morning star rising in our hearts. Revelation 22 says he is the root of the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But let me tell you, we'll end with this. Light has come to those in darkness. Light has been given to us who are sitting in darkness because, now I want you to catch this, the truth of the new covenant is that he who is light, he who is light took our darkness and bore our sin. The salvation, the fulfillment of the promises of David and Abraham, the promises of of our forgiveness of sins, of a new heart has been made possible because the light of the world was cast into outer darkness. In Exodus, you remember, God brought the plagues upon the land. In the ninth plague, there was darkness. Get ready for the tenth plague. And then God killed the firstborn. And that day, in that area, in that realm of, of, of Egypt, that next morning, after the darkness had come to the land, after judgment had come to the land, you either had a dead son, your firstborn, or a dead lamb. And those who took covering under the blood of the lamb, under the, the, the blood that was shed on top of the doorpost, was spared. It wasn't because you were a Jew. It wasn't because you were a Gentile. It was because you trusted God and slaughtered that lamb who took your place and died for you. And now all of a sudden you have life. And the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 15 that when Jesus hung on the cross on the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. Judgment had visited Calvary. As the Son of God takes our sin, becomes our substitute, dies in our place, and the judgment of God, thrown into the outer darkness, becomes Jesus our sacrifice. And then he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, separated from the Father, the intimate relationship he had, separated we don't totally understand that. But the intimacy with the Father as he takes our sin is lost for a moment. And he drinks the cup of our wrath that we deserve and dies in our place. Do you remember I mentioned that Abraham cut the pieces and that God walked in between them? And God said, if, my, if this covenant was to, be break, was to be broken, I'd be cursed and I would die. Well, let me tell you something. On the cross... We see Jesus being cursed. 
God dying. Not because he broke the covenant, but in order to keep the covenant. Jesus Christ becomes a curse for us. Galatians 3. Cursed Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for all of us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone is hung on a tree. Jesus Christ. You know what the worst part of hell is? It's not just a torment. Eternal torment. No God. No love. No peace. No Messiah. No Jesus. No communion with God. And Jesus in that moment experienced for the moment separation. Can we say hell for the moment? In outer darkness so that you can have the light of life. So that you can be forgiven of sins. So that you can have a new heart. Serve God. Love God. Worship God. All the days of your life. I'll end with Charles Spurgeon. Great Baptist preacher. He says, dear friend. You cannot change your own heart. Your outward works will not change it. You may rub as long as you ever you like outside a bottle. But you could not turn ditch water into wine. You may polish the exterior of your lantern, but it will not give you light until the candle burns within. You may attend to all the moralities in this world, but these won't change your heart. What then is to be done? He said, Christ is the great heart changer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Oh, trust him, he says, then to save thee. Trust him to save thee, and if thou dost trust him, thou art saved. Thy nature is renewed, and the work of sanctification, that inner work of God, shall begin tonight. It shall go on until it shall come to its perfection. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The promise of his resurrection shows that he is king, lord over death, sin, and hell, and he will sit on his on David's throne forever and ever. His resurrection points to that. Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the one who crushed sin, death, and hell on the cross, promising to return to establish his eternal kingdom. The table here is the covenant, the new covenant. And in some ways, as you look at this table, you could see all the covenants being fulfilled in a new covenant of Jesus Christ. Who came, who died, who was crucified, whose blood was shed, for the forgiveness of our sins. All the covenants have their yes in Christ Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know that this prophecy goes back thousands of years? Do you know that every single prophecy has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled? We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to call the church to repentance because we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So church, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to spend time, the band's going to sing, and we're going to remember what Christ has done. We're going to remember the body that was broken, and the blood that was shed, and we're going to confess of our sins. We're going to repent of our sins before God. And then we're going to celebrate the forgiveness of sins of the new covenant that was poured out in his blood that gives us forgiveness of sins and gives us a new heart. And then come and celebrate and take of the bread, take of the cup, and celebrate the Lord's forgiveness. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, he is the fulfillment of the new covenant. You need a new heart. You need a new heart. You need to cry out to Jesus. Say I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I've rebelled. My heart is wicked. I don't want people looking in that stained glass. Looking at my heart. I admit that. Come and help me. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new heart. Repent of your sins. And then come. Take up the cup. And of the bread. Let's worship our fulfillment. Let's worship Christ. The fulfillment. Of all the covenants. But particularly 
the new covenant in his blood. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for your precious word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you for your precious word who not only dwelt among us, but was crucified for us, dying in our place, drinking of the cup, being thrown into outer darkness so that we can have the light of life. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his burial. Thank you for his resurrection from the dead. And thank you that he has come. And thank you for your magnificent covenantal promises that have their fulfillment in your beloved son, Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as the music is played and as we sing and as we worship and as we respond, Lord, we pray. Holy Spirit, come. Help us to respond in a way that brings you much glory and brings us joy. Thank you for the promises and thank you for the fulfillment of them. In Jesus' good name, amen.